and welcome again. My name's Riley. I'm the pastor of the church. We're going to, I'm going to preach from Romans chapter one. We're going to sing a song and then we're going to do our baptisms after that. If you're wondering what the schedule is, we are currently working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, It was a letter written about 2000 years ago, written by a man called Paul, but also written by God. And we believe this is God's authoritative word to us. And I'm going to read it for us. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 23. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to hold a physical Bible, put your hand up and someone will get you a Bible. Otherwise, it will be on the screen. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 23 from the ESV version. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So... They are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let us pray together. Almighty God, I pray and ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching and the applying of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is the story of Matthew calling Levi, or sorry, Jesus calling Levi or Matthew the tax collector. Jesus is rocking around Capernaum. He's just healed the paralyzed man and said his sins are forgiven. So there's a bit of a stir about who Jesus is and what he's about. They kind of know of him. He's been teaching. There's people around. But then one day, Jesus is walking through the crowded marketplace. And at the time, Israel was occupied by the Romans. And the Romans would set apart Jewish men to be the tax collectors. And effectively, not only were they taking money and giving it to the Romans who had taken over Israel, the promised land, but they would take some for themselves. So the type of person that would kind of sell themselves out to be a tax collector, they were hated, they were looked down upon. And Jesus walks through the crowd and sees this young man, presumably a man called Matthew or Levi, and he says to him, follow me. And right then and there, Levi gives up his career, gives up his way of making money, gives up his position, leaves the money behind and starts following Jesus. Now, I can't imagine what the disciples were thinking. It doesn't tell us, but you can imagine the disciples thinking, oh no, not a tax collector. You've already collected all these other weird people in this group, and now we've got him. But we do know what the Pharisees were thinking. The Pharisees were the religious rulers. They were the, the, the conservatives of the time. They were the ones who, you know, they, they believed the Bible. They wanted to live out the Bible. They thought that if we just did what the Bible said, God's blessing would return on Israel. But they got so caught up in, in trying to focus on what the Bible said, the Old Testament law, that they lost the heart of it. 
They lost the, the mercy of God and the grace of God. And so after Matthew gets saved, they have a party. Like that's, what ha- that's why we're going to cheer and yell whatever, when the um, Sephania and Mana get baptised. And so Levi throws a party and he invites all of his friends because that's what you do. When you become saved by Jesus, you're like, I want everyone to know. And so Jesus is having a party with his disciples at a tax collector's party. There's probably plenty of alcohol. Who knows what type of people are there? Probably loose people are there. Not the type of crowd you'd expect a rabbi to be with. And the Pharisees are upset. They, they, you know, you might know this story well, but they grumble. They, How can you be at a party with this tax collector and all these sinners. And Jesus turns to them and says in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician or a doctor, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I love those words because in that short sentence, Jesus defines his mission. I did not come to save those who don't think they need saving. I came to call those who realise that they're actually sick with sin. That's why we planted this church four years ago. We came from our sister church in Warunga to Parramatta because we knew there's 250,000 and more people in Parramatta who are sick with sin. Some of them are going to be baptised here today. They didn't know Christ, but we came so that they could meet the doctor, the spiritual doctor. We didn't come because we thought we were healthy and we're like, we've got so much to offer this world. No, we came because we were once those sick people, sick with our sin, desperately needing a cure. We found the cure, it's Jesus, and then we want other people to know about him. And in Romans chapter 1, 18, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is trying to show to the Romans that everyone in the world, in fact, even if you think you're righteous... Outside of Christ, everyone is sick with sin. If you remember back to the dark days of COVID, when we took those rapid antigen tests and then you put it in your schnoz and it was all terrible and then you dip it in the thing, you know, this is gross, you pour it on the thing. I can't believe we ever did that. And there it is there and you're waiting for that second line to appear. Do you know the dread? And then suddenly the faint second line appears and you're like, oh no, I'm in prison. I've got 14 days of isolation. If we were to administer a similar kind of rapid sin test on the world, Paul wants to prove that everyone in the world, if we did that sin test, no matter how religious, the Pope himself, every guru, every religion would come up sin positive. And so Paul is going to try and prove how that is the case in verses 18 to 23. And that's our, that's our mission this morning, this morning is to see, is that really true? Is it fair to say that someone in the deepest jungles of Africa or in the farthest reaches of Arnhem Land in you know, Northern Territory that's never heard of God, never read the Bible, could be condemned as a sinner before God? That's Paul's statement of his argument, and we're going to see, is that true, and then see what we can do about it. So I've got three points for us this morning. Everyone knows God, but they don't love him. That's a problem, but there's a cure. 
So let's jump into point number one. Everyone knows God. Paul states his case in verse 18. Have a look at it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul's argument is that God is righteous and he hates sin. He has wrath. God is not a teddy bear. God is a loving God. But because he loves righteousness, he hates sin and will come against anyone who is a sinner. God's wrath is already revealed in this world every day in death. It's revealed in the futility of life. It's revealed in the depravity of this world. It's revealed... And it's revealed because man and woman, child, old and young, what does it say? They suppress the truth. What does he mean by that? How is that the case? We'll look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, how is that the case? Look at verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Therefore, Paul states his case and sums it up, so they are without excuse. Paul is charging that all humans have a general knowledge of God through creation, and therefore, All humans are without excuse before God. No one will be able to say if they meet God, I didn't know. He's not saying that everyone has a saving knowledge of God or that they know the gospel or a personal knowledge, but he's saying that they have a sufficient general knowledge of God through creation. The Bible or theologians split between two different forms of revelation or ways of knowing God. There's general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is what you can know about God, what's revealed about God through creation. Special revelation is when God breaks through creation and speaks to us through the Bible, through the gospel. And this argument here in verses 18 to 20 is that all humans have received a general revelation about God. Wayne Grudem defines it like this. The knowledge of God or general revelation is the knowledge of God's existence, character and moral law that comes through creation to all humanity. Psalm 19 tells us of this reality. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals Knowledge. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. This poem is saying that if you look at the sunshine, the birds of the air, you look at the moon and the galaxies and the stars, every day they are singing a song to you of the creator, of a divine, immortal, invisible being who must be far greater than anything we could ever see. Our study of the universe and all of our scientific pursuits is meant to make us say, wow, isn't God amazing? There must be a being greater than this universe to create this complex and beautiful and devastating world that we have. Otherwise, none of this could have happened. Yet instead, the passage tells us, humanity 
doesn't like the idea of a supreme being. We suppress that truth and we turn from him. We say things like, there must be some other explanation. There must be some other way of thinking how this universe came into being. Even, even as physicists study how the laws of the universe and they look at the exact ratios that are necessary for human life to exist, if you know about the fine-tuning of the universe, these probabilities are infinitesimally small that a universe like ours could exist, that life could be supported, and yet there's something in, in man that just says, yeah, but there's got to be some other explanation other than a divine being whom I must be held accountable to. And so they come up with philosophical theories like a multiverse. Well, the probabilities are so small in one universe, but what if there's untold number of universes that increases the chances? Now, thinking of that kind of probability, here's a way of illustrating that I've read in one of the commentaries. When you think about just the chances of a world like ours coming into being, imagine I've got 10 coins numbered 1 through 10 and I put them in my pocket and what's the chances I'll pull out coins one through ten in order? I wonder if, you know, Matt's brains, Mr. Hennessy, he might already know the answer. But if I pull out number one, it's a one in ten chance. Put it back in. To now to pull out number two, it's one in a hundred. Put it back in. To pull out number three, it's one in a thousand. All the way through, and you actually end up to get one through ten all in a row, all lined up perfectly, it's one in ten billion. Now, this, isn't an, this doesn't prove God exists. All it's trying to say is that in, we have evidences, we have arguments, we have all this before us, but still, we want to think, but yeah, but it's still possible. <laughs> well, yes, it's possible, <laughs> okay. It's not very likely, though. Now, we must think, well, but what about those people who've never heard? So, you know, we pretty much... Everyone in Australia at some point has probably met a Christian, has probably heard something about God. But what about people that have never heard? What about people that have never been reached? Well, the argument still stands. God says that they suppress the truth themselves. Later on in chapter 2, Paul's going to show how people that have never even heard of God's law are still guilty. Because there's a sense in which God's moral law is actually written onto our hearts. It's in our consciences. That's why if you look at most cultures around the world, there's a very similar ethic. Look at Romans 2, verse 12 and 14 and 15. Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. So there's sort of no like, well, if you didn't ever hear, then you're fine. No, no. For when Gentiles, that's people who aren't Jewish, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So there's this wrestle that goes on, even in cultures that don't have God's law, that they know what's right, and they know they shouldn't do it, but they do it anyway. Well, they know what's right, and therefore, they don't do the wrong thing. And they go, okay, I'm a good person. But either way, whether you look at general revelation in the creation or in the moral law written on our hearts, Paul's point is clear. Everyone is charged as guilty. 
No one will be able to save themselves. If we took the sin COVID test to the deepest reaches of Arnhem Land 2,000 years ago, they would come up as sin positive. So that's the first thing Paul wants to say. He wants to say that everyone knows God. But what's the big deal? What's the big problem? Well, that's point two. But we don't love him. Point two, we don't love him. You see, given who God is, what we know of God, if we know he exists, therefore this being is worthy of all of our worship, all of our devotion, and all of our love. If we're a creature and there's an almighty, amazing creator, then our duty as creature is to give honor and reverence and respect to that creator. But that's not what humanity does, and that's what Paul wants to show in verses 21 to 23. Let's track it through. Verse 21, For although they knew God, this is the Gentile world, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. This is the root sin of humanity. We see God in whatever form and we walk away. We turn away. We either actively live in opposition, suppressing it, or passively, we just ignore him and he has no feature in our life. Either way, active or passive, we do not love him or worship him or enjoy him or revere him as we ought. That's the problem of the world. If you look, if you type in what's the greatest problems in the world on Google, you get everything from climate change to human trafficking, terrible evils. But actually, the greatest problem in the world, their symptoms, the greatest problem is that we don't love God. Tom Schreiner, commentator, says, Sin doesn't consist first and foremost in acts that transgress God's law, so doing wrong things. Sins all stem from a rejection of God as God, a failure to give him honour and glory. Perhaps this is true for some of you who are here even today. You know that God exists. You know this is real. But there's something in you that stops you from worshipping him, from loving him, from giving your life to him, saying, you're my God, I'm your creature, I'm yours. As humans, we were created for worship. That's ingrained in us. That's why like 99% of the world is religious in some form or another. But whether we have a formal religion or we've rejected formal religions, everyone is still religious. Everyone still is worshipping. And that's what the, the passage goes on to say. We'll either wor- we'll worship something. So look at verse 21 to 23 again. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their Foolish hearts were darkened. That means uh, the heart is the epicenter of the human life. The heart is what, what drives you, what your hopes are, what your treasures are, what your passions are. And if your heart is darkened, that means your heart is turned from the light in on itself. 
and it, and it follows whatever you want rather than what God wants. And perhaps some of you, even here today, you know your heart has been darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. He's sort of telling the story from the fall of Adam through to now. We think we'll be wise. That's what Satan said to Eve in the garden. You'll be just like God. How did that turn out? Instead, we become like fools. The Psalms say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. We live as if there's no judgment. We live as if there's no God. We live as if our actions only matter here temporarily. In verse 23, human beings have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. We trade in the true image, God himself, for creation, what he has made. Now, when we hear the word idolatry, we often think of little totems and idols. Um, And for many people in Parramatta, that is still exactly what idolatry looks like. Hindu people have a little, generally, they have a little shrine in their home where they offer sacrifices to a god each day, whether it's Ganesha or Shiva or Hanuman. They recite prayers. They wear special clothes. They do special washings. They might do it multiple times a day. If they're extremely devoted, they'll travel back to places of holiness. They'll go to temple, all in the hope that this God, this representation of this image of a God will provide for them protection or prosperity or a spouse or children. They're worshipping these gods, hoping that it will give them some kind of benefit rather than looking to the one true God who promises us life and blessing in him. But it's not just pagan religions like Hinduism. You can be deeply irreligious and still be an idolater. In fact, you can be a Christian. In fact, all Christians struggle with idolatry every day. That verse 21 where it says our foolish hearts were darkened, that means that the ruling center of our being starts to trust in other things other than God to provide for us life and health and happiness and joy. We start to look to people or look to our careers or look to some other thing other than Him, anything other than Him, because we believe that this thing, whatever it is, will give us what we actually want. That's idolatry. Rebecca Pippert, an evangelist, says this, Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. It's by people. He or she want, or by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. What's controlling you this morning? We can say Jesus real quickly, but there may be other things that actually control your decisions and your finances and your sexuality 
other than God himself. This is the problem of humanity. It's the root issue. Whether you're a Hindu sacrificing to a little home temple or you are desperately a slave of people's opinion and so therefore every morning you spend so much time in the mirror or you're always thinking about what to wear or every presentation is life or death. It's the same problem, just in different forms. Tim Keller says, why do we lie? or fail to love, or break our promises, or live selfishly? Of course, the general answer is because we're weak and sinful. But the specific answer is that there is something besides Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy. Something that is more important to our heart than God. Something that is enslaving our heart through inordinate desires. I have these problems. And I submit to you that you do as well. See, the point of this passage is not for us to be like, wow, aren't those people that don't know God so so terrible? And we're just so good. Isn't it great? Look at us. No, the point of this passage is to help us realize we are just the same. All humans are searching. All humans, well, they've rejected God and then we search for God down here. And we're always looking down and around and we're thinking, oh, maybe if I do this, if I change this about me, if I change my gender identity or if I change my workplace or if I change my spending or if I get this or whatever it is, we think, then, then I'll feel truly human. Then I'll feel flourishing. Then I'll feel alive. And does it ever actually satisfy? Do you know the thirst that never is quenched? Tim Keller has kind of questions to help us identify what potential actual idols might be in your life. How would you answer this question? My life only has meaning or I only have worth if. And don't quickly say Jesus. My life only has meaning Or I only have true worth if I have power over others. I have a certain level of pleasure or comfort. If I'm loved and respected by fill in the blank. If I'm able to control this area of my life. If I'm independent and free to do what I want. If I have someone to care and protect for me. If my race and my culture is ascendant and recognized as superior. We all have ruling desires competing with the one desire to love God and enjoy Him forever. You may tick Christian on the census or Hindu or none the Bible's diagnosis that everyone has a real religion, everyone has a true God, and it's what we fantasize about, it's what we think about, it's what we live for in the day to day. That's your true God. So Paul's saying, everyone on earth knows God in some way or another. It's been revealed. But we don't 
love him. We don't love him. We don't, he's not what occupies our thoughts. He's not what motivates our living. And therefore, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed. God is against anyone who replaces him with anything else. That leads to point three. This is a big problem, but there is a great solution. The problem is the wrath of God really is against such people everywhere, over all history. It's uncomfortable. It makes us feel like that's not fair, that's not right, that's not just, but that's what God's word says. Everywhere, anyone who suppressed the truth will be under God's wrath on judgment day unless, unless they have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, people that have never heard the gospel will not be judged for not believing the gospel. God's not unjust. He's not unfair. They'll be judged on based on what they know and what they rejected God on based on what they know. But for everyone here this morning, you've heard the gospel. We've sung the gospel. We've read the gospel. I'm preaching the gospel. No one here will be able to say, I didn't know there was a solution. And the solution is not a religious moral solution. Just stop doing bad things and try harder. Just stop it. Stop worshipping your idols and just worship God. Just start today. Just, just stop it. Quit it. That's not Christianity. Because that's all about the external, but it doesn't deal with the heart. It's also not an inclusivist positive solution, which we really want in our culture that, no, 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 don't worry about all the sins. God loves you just as you are. You don't need to change a thing. He just, he just loves you. He's a God of love. That's not the solution either because it doesn't change the heart problem. And that's what God hates is when our hearts don't love Him. The solution for every single human being sitting here today, whether you're a Christian or not, is to daily repent of anything that has replaced God as foremost in your heart. For me, daily, it's the pressure to live for the approval of you. I want you to like me. I want you to think I'm great. I want you to follow me. And I want you to just sing my praises and think, wow, he's amazing. And that stops me doing things that changes my actions and my behaviours because I have an idol of approval. And so every day I have to repent. Lord, please, I'm sorry for making the opinion of my people more important than your opinion of me. What is it for you that you need to repent of today? What is driving you? And the good news is, is that Jesus, that same Jesus that said to Levi, follow me. Just before he was about to die, he said to his disciples, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, there is hope and solution for any and all. Jesus is the way back to God. Jesus is the truth. Don't suppress him. 
And Jesus is the life. We turn to these things because we think they're going to give us life. Sexual life, financial life, approval life, but they always come up short. But Jesus promises true and everlasting and abiding life, life eternal. And it's all on offer for all of us today. So flee from your idols to the arms of Christ. Now, understandably, some of us might be cautious because we love our idols. We love our false gods. They've, they've somewhat delivered. And we're anxious. Like if I give, if I'm all in on Jesus, what, I won't get that. I won't get what I was getting there. We can be scared to come to him. And the great novelist and thinker C.S. Lewis wrote about this in one of his children's stories, The, the Silver Chair. There's a young girl, Jill Poole, who gets pulled into this magical fantasy world of Narnia. And through some folly of her own, she gets separated from Eustace, who had been there before. And so then she's lost, wandering about Narnia for a long time. And she starts to get thirsty. She's searching everywhere for a stream. She can't find one. She's dying of thirst. And then at last, she sees the river of life. And she's overwhelmed with joy until she realizes that standing at the river is the great Aslan, the lion, a fierce and bold and ginormous lion, the lion that brought the world of Narnia into existence through song. And C.S. Lewis says this, the lion speaks to her as she's wondering, do I flee or drink? He says, if you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper, wilder and stronger. A sort of heavy golden voice. It, it did not make her any less frightened than she'd been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? Said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? Said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Oh, I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she'd ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it for it quenched your thirst at once. Friends, there is no other stream. Whether you've been running, 
whether you say or whether you claim to be a Christian or you are a Christian, there is no other stream. Come back to Jesus today. Repent again of the idols and drink of that flowing eternal river. Revelation 22, right at the end of the Bible says, the spirit and the bride, that is the church, say, come. And the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Oh, it's on offer. The joy, the hope, the peace, the affirmation, the approval, the security, the comfort that you long for is in Christ. And so come, come, come and drink today and have that life welling up within you again. That's why we planted this church four years ago and why we must keep going forward. We have a thirsty world. We have a thirsty, desperate world looking for streams everywhere and coming up short. There's no ending to how many different ways humans will find to drink anywhere but that one stream because they're afraid of the lion. But he's a good lion. He's the lion who laid down his life for the good of his sheep so that he could welcome us home. And therefore, we as a church, must tell the world about this stream. We must tell each other and we must tell the world because there's a world that doesn't know where the stream is. Later on, Romans 10, Paul will say, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This is our privilege, friends, to show people the stream and to lead people back to it. J.C. Ryle, to close, said this in his book on holiness. Do you ever try to do good to others? If you do, remember to tell them about Christ. Tell the young, tell the poor. Tell the aged, tell the ignorant. Tell the sick, tell the dying. Tell them all about Christ. Tell them of his power and tell them of his love. Tell them of his doings and tell them of his feelings. Never be tired of speaking of Christ. Say to them broadly and fully, freely and unconditionally, unreservedly and undoubtingly, come unto Christ and you shall be saved. Let's join together in prayer and respond in worship. Almighty God, I pray and ask that even now, right this very moment, you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, cause all of us to come again to the rivers of life, to forsake our idols. Lord, I forsake mine. I'm sorry for my sins, for my lust for approval and many others. And Lord, I ask that you would replace it with your everlasting streams. May I come to you and you alone. May we come to you and you alone. Would you give those, all of us here today, the holy and bold confidence to drink from that stream and have our thirst quenched. In Jesus' name, amen.